All right, hold up your Lego so I know they all have one. You all got different colors. I just want you to know that the color you chose tells us a ton about your personality. We did monitor that. We took pictures, secret pictures of you as you got your color. And we'll be sending you a little detailed description of your personality and your disorders in life based on the color that you chose. All right, so let's do a little game with Lego. Uh, Legos, uh, do you know what country that these came from? Who, who was the? Huh? Denmark. Whoa, who said that? You're brilliant. I didn't know that. How many of you knew Denmark? No, none of you knew Denmark. You're just brilliant. Okay, now, even bonus question. What year were these produced for the first time? 19 what? 19 is good. 67 is too late. 1920 is too early. 1949. 1949. Okay, so these little guys came into being in 1949, and they have evolved over time. When I was growing up in the 60s, I had Legos, but the Legos were all like black, white, and red. That's what I remember. I don't remember any other colors. They were either rectangles like this or squares or little two-piecers that you'd always lose. Uh, and, you know, you could build like houses or, you know, you could build like one just long block of things that would just go up. You'd use it for a sword and it'd fall apart. And, uh, you know, so I remember those were really fun. Then when my boys were born, you know, like 20 or so years later, they had really evolved. And now, you know, they had all kinds of shapes and different colors. And you could get wheels. Do you remember? You could get wheels. And that was so fun. So you could make cars and all kinds of things. And, you know, as a parent, you would get in the middle of the night, you'd be walking through the house. And, of course, you'd step on one of these blocks and cuss. And it was just a great thing. The Legos were just an awesome thing that we all had. And then I was over at my nephew's house uh, just a couple of months ago, and Legos, man, Legos have really evolved since then. Now, you know, you not only have shapes and colors and all kinds of, you have gears and you have, you know, like these 3D pictures that you produce. Have you guys seen them now? I mean, it's totally incredible. They have Lego movies. You know, it's just the most amazing thing at this point. I think you can build like atom bombs out of them and, you know, nuclear reactors, all those kinds of things. But the one thing that has always been true about Legos is they are meant to connect to other Legos. In other words, if they don't connect, they are only good for stepping on in the middle of the night and cussing. I mean, there is nothing great about an isolated Lego block. And believe it or not, the Bible, when it talks about people and it talks about God's design for people, it's not that there is no value for individuals, and we'll, we'll rehearse that again in just a couple of minutes. But the idea is that we can never be at our best, and we can never reach our potential unless we're connected to others. We can never just do it in isolation, which, of course, works against the whole mentality of Western independence and the idea of I can be my own man or I can be my own woman and I don't need anyone else. And uh, the Bible just looks at that and says, absolutely not. But the thing that's interesting is that for as much as the Bible talks about the importance of us being connected, as much as God says that I've just designed that into you, that you would be connected to each other, we have the biggest struggles with actually doing that. I mean, there, there is something in human nature now, and, and I guess you'd call it sin, there is something in human nature where we repel each other where when we try to get close together, we clunk on that, we become awkward, we hurt each other instead of being able to come together. 
And in fact, instead of including others and bringing others in, so often we do exactly the opposite. We exclude people. We drive them away from us. And uh, that, that's a plight that all of us have felt. All of us at times have been alienated uh, because of the way things work in this world, because of the ways we relate to each other. When I was in high school, there was a boy in our high school named Wade. And I don't know why he was the one that was targeted, but for some reason, Wade became the guy that everybody teased. Wade became the guy that everybody excluded. Wade was the guy that you made it really clear that he was the butt of the joke. He was the one that you'd make fun of. And it was an interesting thing, because he was an average-looking guy. He was actually a pretty good athlete. He played basketball. He's a pretty good athlete. Uh, Maybe his biggest problem is that he really wanted to fit in. And pretty much the guys in our school made sure that Wade would never fit in. In fact, in our school, uh, Wade became a label. When you were called a Wade, that was like calling somebody a dork or something. I mean, imagine if that was your name. Imagine if your name in your school became, you know, basically a way to describe someone that was a total loser. And that was Wade in our church. Now, let me just ask you this question, because all of us at some time in our life have felt alienated, or we felt that we didn't fit in or excluded in some way. I mean, that's just part of the human plight. And let me ask you this question. Just shout out the answer of what you think. How does it feel when you're alienated? How does it feel when you're excluded? Sad? Lonely? Empty? Painful, helpless, alone. Yeah, and you wonder, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why? You know, it's got to be me. It's got to be a problem with me. Now, I'd love to tell you in this story that uh, there was one boy in our school that just rose above all that, that it was me, that I took Wade under my wings, that I was the guy that believed in in Wade. I was the guy that promoted him and inspired him and sort of carried him along and he became more self-confident and became better and better in basketball. And today, ladies and gentlemen, that boy named Wade is none other than the famous basketball player for the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade. <laughs> you guys don't know Dwayne Wade, but <laughs> he is a good basketball player playing in the finals. Uh, but that's not the story. You know, the reality is I was just as brutal as everybody else. To my shame, I was just as brutal as everyone else. And this is exactly what God does not want. Now, the good thing is that this only happens in high school because we all grow out of that, right? And we never do that anymore. There's never any exclusion or alienation. We never do that. Or maybe the good news is, well, Christians never do that. Religious people never do that. We never exclude other people or alienate them or make them feel sort of less than. And, of course, we know that's not true either. In fact, Christianity may be more known for exclusion and alienation in our country than anything else. Uh, You might look at some of the signs that we are known for in our country, and pretty much when somebody holds up a sign that is against something, uh, odds are that that person comes out of a church, because we are known probably more for what we're against than what we're for. And it is a sad legacy of religion that a religion really is known, maybe a key word that at least outsiders would describe us 
by is that we're known for alienation. We can alienate people. We can make sure that you know that we're not like you, that we don't approve of you, we don't approve of what you do, that we're going to label you, that we feel very comfortable making it clear that we are us and you are you and there is no connection here. And what a sad thing when it gets that way because that is never God's idea for the church, that the church never has this attitude of we are going to exclude you, make sure that you know we don't want you around us. We don't want that behavior. We don't want your kids around our kids. We want you separated from us. That was never God's intention. In fact, I love this last picture that we have um, about signs, and that's not it. You've got to love that guy. Huh? He never knew that he'd become such a household name. Go ahead, rip through those guys. Those are, are you guys all singing those signs for the first time? Okay, there you go. You got to love what we stand against. And then, yeah, if you would. But, you know, I love that sign. And, you know, it's really true. God hates signs. Because signs, when we designate a group of people or some kind of behavior as a sign, we make it one-dimensional. That's all you need to know about that person. That person has a different lifestyle than me. That person has had that mistake in their past. That's all you need to know. That person is not from my country and does not belong here. That's all you need to know about that person. There's nothing else about that person that matters. That person is just a label. And we as Christians, people in the church, religions, tend to do this more than any other group. It's one of the dark ink spots on our reputation in our culture is that we label people, we make them one-dimensional. That's all you need to know about it. And every time we do that, Jesus is grieved. Every time we do it, he says, how could you get that so wrong? How, if you say you follow me, how could you do something that I never, ever, ever, ever did? Because Jesus never did that. He never one-dimensionalized. He never depersonalized somebody and just said, that's all you need to know. And so Paul comes to us, and Paul's going to talk to us about a huge problem in the early church. As the early church was getting, to go, uh, was getting going, uh, there was this dimension in the church where there was huge prejudice. And two groups that God wanted to bring together, people were holding apart. And so if you have your Bibles... And Bibles, by the way, are a great thing to bring to church. And uh, we do put up some of the verses on the screen. But we really hope that you'll bring your Bibles and you can mark in them. And it just helps you to really follow along. But in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to have the address that God makes about this kind of separation that becomes part of our community. And he starts in verse 11 chapter 2, and he says these words, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called, called what? Uncircumcised. There's a nice label. By those who call themselves the circumcision. How would you like to go around and say, I'm the circumcision? It's like, okay, pal. Uh, which is done in the body by human hands. Okay, so you know what? This is such an interesting thing because uh, there was, believe it or not, there was this huge dividing point uh, in the church between those who were circumcised, who had had you know, a little surgical procedure, and those 
who were uncircumcised, those who had never had it. And in fact, this became such a hostile dividing wall that in the ancient world, and certainly in Israel at the time, this was really all you needed to know about somebody. Were they circumcised or not circumcised? And even in the church, believe it or not, even in the church, even in the church where Jesus died to bring everybody into the family, there was such huge division, so much prejudice between these two groups that if you read in Paul's writings as he writes to the early church, he almost never doesn't have to address this. He has to address it in every single letter. And in Ephesians, he has to address it over and over and over again. And and here he takes it head on. So we're going to get exactly what Paul thinks uh, or what Paul believes God says about this. And we're going to really understand what Jesus is up to when it comes to this dividing point. But let me tell you a little bit about the Gentiles. Gentiles are anybody who is not Jewish. Okay, so it's, it's the Jews versus anybody that's not Jewish. Jews were circumcised. Non-Jews generally were not circumcised. And so that's sort of the dividing point. Well, here's the prejudice that Jews felt against the Gentiles. Uh, they had really disdain, contempt for those who were not circumcised. And so here were some of the rules that they had. They, they, they had these rules that a Jewish midwife could not come and help a Gentile midwife deliver a baby because it would bring another Gentile into the world. Uh, they, if a Jew married a Gentile for some reason, they actually performed a funeral for that Jewish person. It was like they had died. That's how bad it was. Um, If you went into a Gentile house and you were a Jew, you were unclean. It means you had to go to the temple. You had to go through a whole bunch of ceremonies to become clean again. That's just if you walked into a Gentile house. And in fact, when Jews would return from traveling around the world or traveling outside of Israel somewhere, they would actually stop. They had a ceremony for shaking the dust, the Gentile dust, off their clothing before they walked back in to the promised land. It was said that Gentiles were the fuel of hell. That's what they believed about Gentiles. Now, imagine the disdain and and sort of the division, this push against non-Jews. But it wasn't just that direction because the Gentiles were horrible in many cases to the Jews as well. So you guys all know the story of Moses. And in Egypt at the time, they were going to kill all the boy babies that were born to the Jewish because they wanted to limit, it was sort of this extermination project to limit the size of the Jewish nation. And then we have another time in history where Xerxes, when he's the king, they're they're about to pronounce this edict that all Jews are going to be slaughtered in the land. At the time that Paul was writing this, it was illegal for a Jew to go into Rome. The major capital of the world, Jews could not go into Rome. And so there was a lot of tension, a lot of pressure. And you know, you think, well, that's back in those days. That's the ancient times. There's not division between the Jews and the Palestinians or anything now. Uh, I was just doing some research. Do you know that there's a wall right now that's being built that's going basically right down the middle of Israel? It separates the Jewish side from the Palestinian side on the West Bank. The wall is 500 miles long. Uh, The section that you see right here divides, believe it or not, divides Jerusalem from Bethlehem. So they're so set on the wall that they actually divide these two really important biblical cities and just say, all right, well, we're taking Jerusalem. You get Bethlehem. Don't come over on our side of the wall. And so this is still true. We have dividing walls. We have these problems that that are occurring. So this is the setup. And there's a huge cost for this alienation, the Bible goes on to say. And this is what Paul says. If you skip down, uh, look at Ephesians 2.12. 
It says this, remember that at that time, now it sounds like he's talking to the Gentiles, right? He started off by saying, you Gentiles. But here's the reality of it. When he calls, excuse me, when he calls somebody a Gentile, that's actually a code that only who would understand? Gentiles don't understand that. It's the Jews. The Jews put that label on somebody. You're a Gentile. Roman and Greek citizens didn't go around saying, I'm a Gentile. It's sort of like if you were talking to somebody who wasn't a Christian, they're probably not going to identify themselves as a non-Christian. Oh, yeah, one thing you need to know about me, among everything else, I'm a non-Christian. That's a tag that a Christian puts on somebody. Oh, that person's a non-Christian. So when Paul uses Gentile, this is a discussion not just for the Gentiles. This is a description or this is a discussion for the Jews to understand, hey, listen, you are part of this problem. You are part of this problem of creating the separation. It says, remember, though, here's the problem for the Gentiles. You were separated from Christ. Now, this is not a statement actually about Jesus. The Christ, Christ is a name for Messiah. From times in the past, you were separated from the Messiah, the promised coming king. Now, we know Jesus fulfilled that. But here it's just basically saying the Gentiles were never in on that discussion. The Savior of the world, that was never for the Gentiles. Along with that, it says you are excluded from citizenship in Israel. You never got the rights of citizenship whenever you were in Israel. And this is speaking to people that live in Israel. So Gentiles would say immediately, yes, I understand that. We don't get any of those rights of living in this country. Then it said that you're foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And there were promises that were given in the Old Testament. There was a huge promise given to Abraham. There was a promise that was given to David. These were promises of God's blessing, not only now, but in eternity, in the future. There was huge promises that were promised. And the statement here is that was never for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were never included in that. And then maybe the two most damaging statements, the Gentiles were without hope because God was not part of their future. And then finally, without God. And they believed in a lot of different gods. It's not that they were without gods or an idea of deity. They had all kinds of ideas. But they were separated from the one true God. And this is a huge problem for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are paying a huge price for this division. But again, this is not just aimed at the Gentiles. In the temple at the time, there was a huge temple in Jerusalem, and this is where the Jews came to worship. And the temple was really a significant place. Not only was it a place of worship, but it, it really was well beyond that. The belief at the day is that who dwelled in the temple? Easy answer in church. God. God dwelt in the temple. Now you say, well, doesn't God dwell everywhere? Isn't he omnipresent? Yes. But there was a thing called the Shekinah of God, the glory of God. And the belief was that in the temple is where God's Shekinah reigned. And that was if you really wanted to get close to God and be in God's will and really have all the blessings of God, the temple is where you went. The temple is where you made peace with God. The temple is where you got teaching to move forward with God. It was this idea, the Shekinah was in the temple. Do you know that it was possible for Gentiles actually to go into the courtyard of the temple, but there was a wall that was put up where it said, you cannot go beyond this. In other words, you can't go, you could go into the courtyard, but you could never go into the temple. And in fact, here's what the seeker-friendly sign said. Foreigner, if you pass this sign, we're going to kill you. 
Literally, that's what it said. You pass the sign, you die. That's how it goes here. Just so you know your place. And Paul looks at that. And he says, that was never the intention that God had. The Jews were never put on this earth. They were never recruited to be God's people for the purpose of excluding everyone else. In fact, just the opposite. They were put on earth to bring everyone to God. They were put on earth to be a display, to show the world how God works in a group of people, how he changes lives, how his blessings are the blessings that everyone would want, and to get the word out, to model love and acceptance. That was always the idea that God had for his Jewish people. And yet what they had done is they had used their specialness and their position and their thought that we are God's people to say, you know what, I'm on the in crowd and everyone else is just a wade. Everyone else deserves to be excluded. So into this problem steps Jesus. And in Ephesians 2.13 it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And really what this is a statement is, Jesus looks at this situation and he says, not on my watch. This is not the way it's going to be. This is not the way my church is going to operate. And basically you get this sort of idea of Jesus rolling up his sleeves and he goes, I know there's a huge problem here. I know that there's tons of division And the Gentiles don't want to be with the Jews, and the Jews are excluding the Gentiles, and there's all kinds of friction. And Jesus just says, not on my watch. That's not the way my people will be. And so he leans in, and basically he says, here is what I'm going to do about this, starting in verse 14. And I just want to walk through this, because uh, there's a lot of terms in here. Some of these are really important to understand. It starts off by saying, for he himself, who is he himself in here? Jesus, another good safe answer in church, Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Now, in this section that we're looking at, peace is repeated three times. Reconciliation is used. A couple of times it talks about basically building bridges or bringing people together. We're all one in the spirit. This is the predominant, the preeminent statement that Paul makes about unity in the church. Right here in this little section is where he's going to make his strongest statement because he's chosen the strongest division and he's talking about peace among people who would never have peace. And he says this statement. He says, Jesus is our peace. Now, he doesn't say Jesus proclaims peace. He did that, but that's not this statement. He doesn't even say Jesus models peace, which he did. He totally modeled peace. Here he says... He is our peace. And here's really the idea that he's giving. He's saying, if you're in Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you're planning on going to heaven because of what Jesus did for you, if you are a child of God, if Jesus is this Lord in your life, peace is not an option. You don't get any wiggle room on this. It's not like you can say, well, I'm taking Jesus, but I'm not into this peace thing. 
The statement here is Jesus is our peace. If you're connected with Jesus, then you are pursuing peace, the kind of peace he's talking about here. He is our peace. And he starts by breaking down the walls between a God that is holy and a person like Kevin who is sinful and says, and I I produce peace for you. And Kevin, it's a good thing I didn't just label you. I didn't just look at you and said and say, well, there's a lustful guy. And that's all you need to know about Kevin. Kevin lusts. All you need to know about Kevin, one word, gossiper. That guy gossips. There's nothing else you need to know about him. Uh, you know, all you need to know about him is he's selfish. Kevin is a selfish guy. That's all you need to know. There's nothing else to tell about his story. It's a good thing that God doesn't look at me, doesn't look at you and say, listen, I've got a label. I'll just put you in a category, and then I can totally dismiss you. Because here's the amazing thing. God looks at all of who I am. Jesus looks at all of who I am. He sees the weaknesses. He sees the parts of me, my flat sides. But then he says, but he's, he's a child of God but he's been forgiven, but mercy has been poured out. He's received an inheritance. He is, remember last week, he is my masterpiece. And God looks at you holistically and grabs onto you and says, there's going to be peace. You're way too valuable for me not to have reconciliation with you. It's an amazing statement. It says that he destroys the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And we've shown you a couple of walls. There's a wall in the temple that I described. There's the wall that's up there. But of course, they're not all literal walls. They're those figurative walls where we block people off and categorize them. And we're not going to have anything to do with them. And I don't like their lifestyle. And they're probably going to hell anyway. And, you know, that whole dividing wall, God just says, no, I'm bringing that down. You can't do that anymore. No more of that dividing wall thing. By setting aside uh, in his flesh the law. The word for law there is an interesting, that's not the Ten Commandments. He's not setting aside the Ten Commandments. The word law there is dogma, and we get the English word dogma from it. But this is the idea. It's all the, the little attachments that they put onto the law to divide people out. So the Jews had a whole bunch of rules about dividing out and away from the Gentiles. And here it says, Jesus abolishes that. No more of that. I don't want you to making up these rules about separation. He goes on to say, uh, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Now, this is the most amazing statement, you guys, because basically the world was divided in the Jewish mind between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here's what Paul is saying. Now there's a third category, this new humanity. And this new humanity is everybody who's in Jesus And it's made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's made up of people that have a background in following the Old Testament and people that had no clue what the Old Testament was. It's made up of people that were circumcised and people that are uncircumcised. It's made up of both men and women. It's made up of people that are free and people that are slaves. This new humanity, basically what they say is our identity doesn't have anything to do with our differences It only has to do with the fact that we're connected with Jesus. And isn't that the most amazing thing? That's the way the church has always been meant to be. It's not that we aren't different from each other, and we can celebrate the differences, but that our primary identity is that we're connected to Jesus. That's the first thing you need to know. 
That's what connects me to you, and you are connected to me. That's what makes us Legos together. That new humanity says, in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. And that's really all you need to know. That's all you need to know as far as connecting the two of us. And then as you read down, it finally says, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, which of course is the most amazing statement because the Jews believed no one had access to the Father except them. And Paul says, no, everybody in Jesus has access to the Father. Again, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter how bad your sinful life has been, it doesn't matter if you were raised going to church or not going to church. You have access to the Father in Jesus because peace has been made. And then finally, skipping along, it says in verse 19, it says, so here is the results of what the church looks like. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, speaking of the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens. You have the rights and you have the privileges of somebody who's in the church with God's people and also members of his household. You're all part of one family. The number one thing you need to know, you are sitting right now with brothers and sisters. That really is, God sees it that way more than any other thing that you might see when you look at another person. He says, brother, sister. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become, now this is really important, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, the temple was a literal building. When Jesus was walking around in Jerusalem, the temple was a literal building where God's presence dwelled. Then Jesus started to say, this temple, this physical building is going to disappear, which we know it did. About 30 years later, it disappeared. Ripped down, destroyed. He said, but don't fret because there's a new temple. And at first what he was talking about is himself. He said, I am the temple. God's presence is in me. And when I walk around, I am distributing God's presence. I am including people. And when he dies on the cross, the idea is now everyone that comes to me comes into the temple. But here Paul makes such a radical statement. He says, now it's not just Jesus, the physical Jesus, because he was leaving too, as far as a physical presence. Now the temple is us. Now the temple is God's people. Now the temple is when the people of God come together in Jesus. There is the presence of God on earth. It is the most amazing statement about the church that we are God's presence. Now, he's present everywhere, but the idea here is this is the Shekinah. Literally, this is the Shekinah of God is when the church comes together, is when the Legos fit together, God's Shekinah is on display. An amazing statement. There's another statement if you're sort of wondering, well, is that really true? Kevin says it is, but I don't know. Well, Peter says it's true. 1 Peter 2.4, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, talking about Jesus, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, 
You also, now listen, you also, the living stones are being built into a spiritual house, which another translation for spiritual house is the temple of the spirit. You are being built into the temple of the spirit. You are God's presence. That is who we are. Huntington Beach, that is who we are. In in Huntington Beach, we are God's presence in Huntington Beach. We aren't the only church that is God's presence. There's many churches in Huntington Beach, but that is our identity. God looks at us and he says, you are my presence. You're on display. You are the ones that change this community. I work through you to change this community. I work through you to bring people to me. I work through you to make this society a society that is more honoring to me. I work through you to build each other up and make you into the people that God destined you to be. It is my presence in your church, in your community, in the corporate gathering of being together. And there's just a couple of implications that I want to draw to as we close here. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are God's temple, that we are the building uh, building blocks, that we are, you know, we are the, the Lego? Here's one thing, is the temple of God is never a physical dwelling anymore. It's never a place. It's not like you go to the... How many of you have been to the chapel on the Irvine campus? Or you've seen the chapel on the Irvine campus? Okay, about half of you. Okay, well, you know, that's a beautiful chapel. That's not where the presence of God dwells. There's no building where his presence dwells in this way. If you want to know what it is, we have a picture that was taken here of uh, the temple of God. That's the temple of God right there. And it's so cool. Elton's sitting in the exact same place he is in that picture. That is the most amazing thing. Elton, you are so stable. I love that. All right. So, you know, that is, that's the temple of God. And we are basically a bunch of Lego bricks that have been put together, fitted together, joined together, connected. And the implications are significant. The first implication is this. Unity like this draws people in. When I was... uh, in high school, never went to church, wasn't interested in anything that had to do with church. And I met a guy who was a youth pastor, but also a football coach, invited me to go on a trip with his youth group. And uh, I've, some of you have heard the story. The only reason I went, as he said, it was a bunch of high school students. He said, the only reason I went is because he said, I've got a lot of girls going and not enough guys. And I was like, well, maybe I could go. Maybe I could help you out there, you know, in my role. So anyway, I went on this trip. And let me tell you, I came back from this trip. I'd never heard anything out of the Bible and didn't know anything about the gospel or Jesus or die for sins. I didn't know any of that stuff. I never even heard it. And I became a Christian on that trip. I prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. And let me tell you a little secret about that. I still had no clue about anything that had to do with Jesus. Really. I mean, it was from a 20-minute talk by a speaker who just presented Jesus Do you know what drew me in, what drew me to Christ? It was that I loved the kids on that trip. And I basically thought, this was my honest thought, I don't really care what they believe, but I want to be part of this group. And if to be part of this group, I need to believe in Jesus, I'll believe in Jesus. That was how much that community drew me in. Now, you might be glad to know that now, you know, relating to Jesus is more important to me and it isn't just the community. 
But you know, the community has such a powerful draw. If I was to ask you, how many of you would say that the reason really that you were first drawn to God was because of his community somehow, where it was, it was something about a person or a group of people or some group, a youth group that you were part of. How many of you would say, yeah, that's me? There is something so magnetic about that. And that's one of the things that God says. When we act in unity, when we're together in that way, God's spirit draws people in. So let me tell you one thing. Come to our picnic today, man. I mean, here's the deal. The reason we're doing the picnic isn't just because we want to watch Low devour watermelon. It's because we want to get to know each other. And, you know, it always takes some work. There's always that awkwardness, and do I really want to go? And, you know, what if I don't know anyone? What if nobody talks to me? It takes a little bit of a risk. I just want to encourage you, come. This is the way that we become the community of God, where we actually become friends, brothers and sisters that interact with each other. It's hard to do it if we don't know each other's names, right? Hard to do it. So just come, come. This is a great day for us to do this together. The second thing that we see here is that really the purpose of the temple to draw people in, uh, that power requires that we're all in it together, that we all work in this together. There's a great scene. There was a movie years ago called The Longest Yard. You remember it with Burt Reynolds, Longest Yard? Yeah, and then Adam Sandler, I think, did a remake of it. Okay, so you guys know that? It's about a guy who goes to prison. He's a professional football player, a quarterback, and he was shaving points. He's sent to prison, and he's told he has to put a team together to play the guards, and they're going to get killed by the guards. And so he's putting the team together, and he can only get the white guys from the prison to be on his team because he's a white guy. And somebody asks him about it, and it says, why are there no black guys on your team? They're like the best athletes in the prison. And he says, well, you know, it's not that important. We'll just play them with the white guys. And he says, you're going to get killed. You have got to have all All the inmates have to participate in this. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. You're going to get beat up if you don't. And he does. He brings in all of the players. And, you know, the reality is what we're called to do in Huntington Beach, we are called to transform this city. We are called to transform Fountain Valley. We are called to transform Westminster and Garden Grove and Seal Beach. We are called to transform. It isn't just to make a church where 200 of us can show up and have church together. It is to transform this community. And that is hard. That takes a lot of work. That means we need everybody in the game. And that doesn't just mean all of you. That means all the people that God has called to be part of this church that right now are sitting at home and don't even think about God. They're not thinking about you. They don't know about Golden West College. They have no clue. And our job is to get everybody in on the team to say, we can't do this without them. We can't do it without the whole team being assembled. And that falls on us to bring everybody in. That's part of the temple of God coming together to do what none of us can do apart. And the final thing that it means is this. Have any of you ever done a huge jigsaw puzzle and you get to the end of maybe 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, beautiful, you know, sort of landscape scene, just this incredible thing. What is the worst thing that can happen at the end of the puzzle? You are missing a piece. And it's happened to me. And you search the house upside down, and you're like just, ugh. 
Because as beautiful as the picture looks, and you know, it still looks beautiful, as much as the puzzle, you know, 499 ninths of it is put together, there is only one thing that your eye goes to, which is the empty spot. Where is that piece? And I just say it to make this point. You are important. We are made up of a group of individuals. And the idea is that we all play a part. And if you are missing, then we are not complete. There is a perspective you bring. There is a giftedness you bring. There is a passion you bring. There is an experience you bring. There is something unique because you are God's masterpiece that only you bring. And we are not complete without you. We are not complete without you participating and engaging with us and being part of who we are. We can't have a puzzle with missing pieces. We need all of us to be engaged, all of us to be a part. And as that happens, we will draw people into our community and we become a powerful, supernatural community that transforms our society and transforms the people around us. And it is a journey worth going on. And I want to invite you to become part of this journey of joining our staff and our families and the core group that has been here. And those of you that have been making this your home, you know, it's more than just showing up on Sunday morning. It's becoming community together. That's what we're called to do. And as we become the temple of God, the glory of God shines. And people change and societies change and God's kingdom grows. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so, so grateful that you have created peace, that you're the one that brings very different people together, even people with prejudices, even people that stand off from each other. And yet we, we recognize that you are able to overcome all of those divisions and create a united, loving family that works together and is built up and becomes your temple. And we pray that. For our church, that's what we want to be. That is our dream. It's the reason we've come into this community. Is It's not just to meet on Sunday mornings. It's to become your temple in Huntington Beach and to make a difference. So thank you for that. And we pray later today as we get to meet people at the picnic. We pray in the weeks to come as we grow together and serve together and participate together and give together and do all these things that you create something supernatural in our community. And we will give you the glory and the credit and the honor if you deserve it. Jesus, thank you so much. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.